This is a two-part series where we talk about the role of TCA cycle in the evolution of eukaryotes. Here is the first part for you all to enjoy. Hello everyone, welcome to Antibodies. This is our 28th bodysode a segment where we discuss research papers with the first or last authors of the article. Joining me today is my wonderful host, Dara, from University of Paris, Seclay. How are you doing, Dara? I'm good. How are you? I am doing great. The article we're discussing today is titled TCA Cycle Signaling and the Evolution of Eukaryotes. The first author of the paper is Dr. Dylan G. Ryan, and he's joining us today to discuss the article. Welcome to the podcast, Dylan. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me on. Uh, we have uh, Dylan here with us, who is a for, uh, who's from the lab of Dr. Luke O'Neill at the Trinity College Dublin. The lab of Luke O'Neill is one of the major, if not the major lab studying immunometabolism. He played a key role in discovering many important immunological molecules and processes, including the TLRs, the inflammasome, and certain cytokines like uh, interleukin-1. Additionally, his lab has developed novel therapeutic approaches to inflammatory diseases. Dylan completed his graduate research from the Luke O'Neill's lab and is now a postdoc at the University of Cambridge. Uh, Dylan, what is your research focus right now? Yeah, right now it's, it's actually diverged uh, quite a bit from from my PhD studies with Luke, who's a fantastic scientist, by the way. I have to I have to give him a plug there. Um, but at the moment, my kind of current research focus is on um, mitochondrial stress signaling, which you'll probably see is kind of like a running theme even in in this evolutionary perspective that I wrote. Um, but specifically, I actually moved from studying uh, immunometabolism to cancer metabolism. And I actually work on a hereditary renal cancer syndrome. Uh, this is a bit of a tongue twister, but it's called hereditary leomyomatosis and renal cell cancer, or HLRCC for to make it a lot simpler. Um, and how I ended up kind of going in this direction is that I worked on the TCA cycle in macrophages, um, and this disease is actually caused by a heterozygous germline mutation in fumarate hydratase, which is a TCA cycle enzyme. Um, and it actually results in uh, cancer transformation in the kidney. So at the moment, I'm trying to understand um, how does these mutations that affect TCA cycle enzymes actually signal to the nucleus. And uh, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Okay, it looks like a lot of what you have done before is currently helping you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I'm a, I'm a TCA cycle enthusiast. Well, I, I won't say I'm a TCA cycle enthusiast, but in the past two years, I have I have attended several talks in immunometabolism, two of which were from uh, Dr. Luke O'Neill, one at Boston and one was a virtual one. And I think I've started to embrace how important metabolism is, is even from an immunologist's perspective. Absolutely. From like, when I was a... Uh, uh an undergraduate student, I was actually kind of veering towards working on neurochemistry and I was doing a project that was about uh, glutamate excitotoxicity and uh, redox metabolism. Um, and I came across Luke's paper on succinate and succinate as a signal for like the regulation of a pro-inflammatory cytokine in IL-1-beta. And it just completely captured me and I said, I'm applying for a PhD with, uh, 
with Luke. So I had no immunology background. I'm a, I'm a biochemist by training, and I just dove in head first, right into macrophage biology. And and now I'm and now I would consider myself an immunologist. <laughs> oh, that that is that is quite quite exciting to have a jump from. Like it's not exactly a jump; it's somewhat of an interdisciplinary work between biochemistry and immunology. I think it's it's great to be able to be in this area. So, though this paper is somewhat out of our usual antibody scope, we wanted to show some exciting new work in the field of metabolism and mitochondria. After all, metabolism plays a huge role in how our cells have evolved and even in how our immune system reacts to threats. We are also going to talk a lot about TCA cycle today. It turns out that apart from being every undergraduate student's nightmare, TCA cycle is actually very useful for survival and evolution. Before we begin, Dara, do you have something else to add? Yeah, I do have a joke actually. Okay, I'm ready for the joke. Dylan, are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. What kind of uh, tent would a mitochondrion use? A tent? I don't know. Yes, a no tent. Idea. No idea. ATP. A TP. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can it? Am I missing something? What's the TP? A TP is a uh, kind of tent. Oh, okay. I, I'll I'll be honest that I did not understand it oh. before you explained. <laughs> All right. That's fine. We have then. to Google it afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Google what that. a TP is. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Dara. So, apart from the joke, what else do we have today? Okay, so before diving into the paper, let's um, get some qualifications on the terminology that will will come across throughout this paper. So, first of all, the archaea. I know that archaea are one of the three big branches of the tree of life. Others are bacteria and eukarya, and the last one are the one that we belong to. But what exactly is archaea, Dylan? Yeah, so like I think you touched on it um, briefly there in, in defining the domains of life. So like I think in order to define what archaea are, it's kind of important to, to communicate the concepts of what is a prokaryote and what is a eukaryote. So like prokaryotes are like single cells and microorganisms that less lack like membrane brown structures, most notably a nucleus, but also other kind of, you know, endomembrane systems. Um, and it was long thought that these were one group, just one family of organisms, but like with the advent of kind of the genome sequencing, for example, and this is actually way back in the 70s. And um, they found by analyzing ribosomal RNA genes and looking at like the, the, the composition of the membranes that there was actually two different branches and that they initially mm -hmm. called uh, one archaebacteria and a new bacteria. Uh, this has evolved over time to become archaea and, uh, and bacteria as we know them today. And so archaea are, are quite unusual. They're, they're, well, now we know that they're um, found like virtually in every kind of aspect of the biosphere, yeah. even in the human gut. But they were initially identified as extremophiles. So they lived in like, you know, really, really unusual conditions, uh, mm -hmm. such as an, in the vents and in, uh, in the deep sea with great pressures and different kind of environmental constraints. And um, so they're this really, really amazing kind of branch of single celled microorganisms. And they also have evidence, uh, they're very hard to culture, but there is some evidence from metagenomics that they actually may have some sort of more complex internal membrane structures. Mm -hmm. um, and they're actually more similar to eukaryotes than our bacteria. And they actually have very similar systems of um, uh, translation and transcription. And, you know, we'll, we'll probably touch on some of these, these points because it was a great 
keen understanding you know the origins of eukaryotes but we can we can dive into that as we go along yeah dylan what you, you were mentioning about yeah. archaea take, taking uh, it's hard to culture them one of the labs in our in my department uh, they work on archaea and one of the friend was telling me that it takes them about three to four weeks to get enough archaea to start an experiment and and if it doesn't work then that's four weeks wasted doing nothing so yeah, it's pretty Absolutely. hard to work on these things you need a lot of patience, of, of course. You, you'll probably, uh, I, I know you, we'll touch on this study later on, but um, there was a paper published very recently where it was a 10-year investigation in order to grow this, this, this one particular member of a clade of this, this uh, archaea that we're very interested in. And I was like, that is, that is ultimate patience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so next, in order to understand the role of mitochondria in regulating cellular function better, it is important to understand its origin and the role during eukaryotic development. There are two major competing views actually about the origin of eukaryotes and uh, the two major theories are uh, either the gradualist theory and the symbiogenic theory. What are these two theories dealing and which one do you believe in more? Yeah, so I would go, personally, I would definitely lean towards the symbiogenic theory. And mm -hmm. I, I think that the evidence that we have are I wouldn't say irrefutable because we're like detectives coming back on the scene, but I would think the evidence is uh, a lot more striking and there's a lot more of it to support that. But essentially the gradualist theory actually, it, it, it believes that like the, the evolution of eukaryotes from like a, a, a more simple prokaryotic mm -hmm. origin occurred in sequence and this complexity just grew over time. So for example, they think that mitochondria were actually, they, they, they were, there was this important event related to mitochondria, but it actually wasn't the, the instigator that uh, facilitated the, the jump from simple life into complex eukaryotic life, which of course gives rise to all the kind of, you know, multicellular complex organisms we see on the planet today. So they don't believe in the importance of mitochondria. But then we have the symbiogenic theory, mm -hmm. which they hypothesized that there was this endosymbiotic event between an archaeal host, and we can discuss why we, we think the, an, an archaea was the actual host, and they have a pretty good idea of which archaea or from which kind of particular clade, um, began an endosymbiotic relationship with a, a, what we would call a mitochondria precursor, like a, a remnant mitochondria that's believed to be related to the alpha polybacterial kind of uh, species. Um, and in, in this theory, they actually presuppose that this event was actually the pivotal moment and that this actually facilitated the adaptation or, or the evolution of eukaryotes. Um, and just, I'm not sure if we've actually touched on this, but just so we know in terms of like uh, what we would define as a eukaryotic cell is one in which it's got a nucleus that, that's uh, surrounded by a, a nuclear membrane. And that's one of the big kind of divergent factors as well as more kind of complex internal structures like an endomembrane system. So that's kind of like, you know, but I'm definitely um, fully uh, adherent to the symbi uh, symbiogenic theory, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, last one, the chromatin. What is chromatin? Yeah, this, this, this one is straightforward. This is just, it's just a complex of DNA and protein that are found in eukaryotic cells. Yeah. Um, and you know, like these DNA, it, it can be long and strand. So these kind of interactions facilitate the folding of DNA in a way that it can actually be compacted. And uh, it becomes compacted into denser structures called nucleosomes, which then become compacted into chromosomes, what we know. Yeah. And in archaeal lineages, are histones responsible for packaging and compacting of uh, DNA in the same way as in eukaryotes? 
They do, yeah, yeah. So definitely, that's the, the interesting thing about uh, Archaea as well is that the, the actual, the original histone falls, and I believe it's related to the. It, it's quite similar to the H three, the histone three, histone mm-hmm. four, yeah. um, tetramer that that we know of. Obviously, we've got an octamer, um, in modern eukaryotes that facilitates the folding. But there, there is evidence that uh, archaeal histones fold DNA in a similar way, but not identical. Um, and in fact, that there might be evidence uh, that this can be modified in similar ways to, mm-hmm. to eukaryotic histones to, to change the, the binding structure. So absolutely. And uh, actually reading about those particular studies and the, about archaeal histones was definitely one of the, the inspirations uh, for my particular theory and hypothesis that we'll discuss. Hey, thank you. Done with the terminology, Jordan. All right. So let's talk about what this paper is about. In the endosymbion theory, it is suggested that the mitochondria contributes to the relationship by providing the mitochondrial genome, which then enables additional metabolic processes and an expanded genome for the host. On the other side, the archaeal host provides chromatin that allows for better regulation of this expanded genome via epigenetic mechanisms. The authors of this article pose a question that we still don't know how the communication takes place between the mitochondrion and the archaeal host. To answer this, they propose a concept where the TCA cycle acts as the mode of communication to coordinate many functions through its metabolites. Dylan, when I reached out to Luke to invite him for this podcast, he told me that you were responsible for the more than 90% of this paper. And of course, that's why he, he directed me to you. So did you also <laughs> come up with this idea that the TCA cycle may be involved in the coordination of processes between the host, the nucleus and the mitochondrion? Well, I have to say, I definitely had a lot of inspiration from scientists that have come before me, especially those that work in the field of mitochondrial metabolite signaling. And so I wasn't the first to propose that, you know, there would be an essential role for for metabolite signaling in evolutionary origins. But I definitely have developed the concept. So it was actually during my PhD when I was working on a TCA cycle derived metabolite. So I was working on a metabolite called idoconate. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but uh, if you'd like to discuss it at some point, we can. And it's actually synthesized in macrophages from uh, this TCA cycle metabolite called cisticonate. So I found out that this was a, an important signal that actually signaled and regulated cytokines um, in macrophages. And it, it got me wondering during my PhD, and I was trying to have a, a broader conceptual discussion uh, about what is the role of, of uh, TCA cycle signaling in in evolution and this is i developed largely developed this concept um and we were invited luke was invited by uh professor karsten hiller who kind of discovered the the enzyme that synthesizes that to to actually uh write about this topic and so i developed the idea a little bit further in a christian fretz's group with christian who is a a real tca cycle enthusiast as well Uh, and then ultimately this is what emerged okay so to start off, let's discuss what does the mitochondrion do for the host. It is required for the host oxidative phosphorylation and generation of iron sulfur clusters that help in electron transfer transfer in the electron transport chain. Then the mitochondrion plays a key role in cellular differentiation, stress adaptation, and even affects programmed cell death. 
for example cytochrome c released from the mitochondria is considered to be a signal to initiate the programmed cell death process and the discovery of this phenomenon was the first instance where we could ascribe a signaling function to the mitochondria in fact now we know that there is back and forth communication between the nucleus and the mitochondria to coordinate some processes like cellular proliferation one of the papers that you guys cited in this article draws a very interesting analogy and i had to mention it they 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 wrote that for the nucleus to set off the cell division process without consulting the mitochondria would be like you taking a long road trip in your car without checking your gas tank it's so on point <laughs> yeah absolutely okay let's all, let's move on to the tca cycle it is an amphibolic pathway which means there are both anabolic and catabolic processes involved the tca cycle has three important objectives first to take an acetyl coa molecule and completely oxidize it second to regenerate the oxaloacetate molecule so the cycle can continue perpetually and third to generate these high transfer potential carriers like nadh and fadh that would eventually help in the electron transport chain everything else that can be attributed to the tca cycle is a byproduct of meeting these three objectives to give an example some tca intermediates can be used for generation of amino acids and fatty acids as is the case for the generation of glutamate through alpha ketoglutarate or the generation of simple fatty chain acids through citrate Dylan, in the text you mentioned that the TCA cycle is considered to be a central metabolic hub. Can you break that sentence down for us? What is it that makes this cycle the central hub? Absolutely. I just want to uh, throw back as well to the the, the cytochrome C apoptosis, and then I, and then I'll answer your question, Jatan. But I think, given it's an immunology audience, I think what is quite exciting now is that. what well, cytochrome c and program cell death was the first signal that was identified i think what's really exciting now is that we even find that oxidized mitochondrial dna is a trigger of pyroptosis oh. so we see that the mitochondria and signals that emerge from mitochondria are really essential so just for like the nrp3 and plasmasome and uh, i just think that that's super exciting so we started with cytochrome c and now it's it's involved in virtually all um cell death pathways but uh, sorry that was just an aside uh, and i'm coming back to why would i consider the tca cycle a, a central metabolic hub so when you when you think of a hub you think of a, a focal point a center the 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 effective center of a network so as we know that uh, cellular and systemic metabolism it's it's a very complex network of different metabolic pathways and you've given a great example with the tca cycle has a number of inputs and a number of outputs um and like for example it, it generates the majority of reducing equivalents as you mentioned that these feed the electron transport chain which generate the proton motor force and the electrochemical gradient and this is essential for the synthesis of ATP so if you think about all the pathways that feed this we've got amino acid catabolism we have fatty acid oxidation we have glycolysis we've got glutaminolysis um, and even even recently it's been found that under conditions of glucose starvation that ribose or even ribose derived from uh, RNA itself can actually be used to feed the TCA cycle. So virtually any any nutrients that can be um utilized as a nutrient feeds into the TCA cycle. So it's the major input when it comes to bioenergetics. 
But if we put that on the flip side and we have a look at like anabolic pathways, you know, TCA cycle intermediates are required for some of the most important um, biological macromolecules in the cell. So a great example, kind of one that you haven't touched on is that oxaloacetate is a precursor for aspartate. Um, and in proliferating cells, it, it, for some great work uh, a couple of years ago, it was shown that aspartate is one of the, the rate limiting steps and why mitochondria and respiration are essential for, for proliferation. So aspartate as well as feeding protein synthesis, it's really, really important for the synthesis of purine pyrimidines, which will give rise to RNA and DNA. Um, and, and another example, citrate-derived acetyl-CoA is essential for lipid synthesis, and then succinyl-CoA is a precursor for heme synthesis. So there's so many different uh, amazing molecules that actually derive from the regulation of the TCA cycle. Uh, and this is why I would call it the, the effective center or the central metabolic hub. It's like the beating heart of metabolism. Um, and then what's even more exciting is like if we go beyond the, the realms of uh, macromolecule synthesis and, and uh, bioenergetics is that now we've got this emerging role where they actually act as signals that regulate gene expression, um, which I think is uh, remarkable. Damn, that's a lot of things <laughs> that the TCA cycle is doing. <laughs> <laughs> All Absolutely. Right. Dara, would you like to tell us a little bit more in detail about the symbi symbiogenic theory of eukaryogenesis? That's of course. So essentially all eukaryotes uh, share a common ancestor that arose from the genomic chimerism of prokaryotes. And most importantly, all of them possess mitochondria and once or once possessed and maybe lost them due to reductive evolution. And this suggests that the origin of eukaryotic cells requires de the development of mitochondria for research. Uh, reasons which are not known yet. However, within the symbiont theory itself, there is uh, still a current debate as to whether my mitochondria were acquired early during the karyogenesis, also called the mito-early theory, or whether they were later um, um, acquired to a proto-eukaryotic cell, also known as the late, the mito-late theory. Recent phylogenomic evidence supports the mitolate theory, where they believe that mitochondria were added later to a chimeric prokaryotic ancestor, and that was in the process of uh, evolving its complex eukaryotic traits, such as the endomembrane system. Regardless of the timing of mitochondria addition, both theories support the idea that uh, this event was a pivotal moment uh, during eukaryogenesis and provided definitive selective advantage. Uh, so Dylan, what do you mean by the selective advantage? Is it the, the ATP production by mitochondria? No, by, by it, but it could very well. Yeah, I definitely think that there's a, a bioenergetic component to the definitive mm -hmm. selective advantage. But what, what I meant by that was as a proponent of the, uh, the the symbiogenic theory is that that ultimately that event that particular event was what enabled the evolution of a eukaryotic cell and that without that there would have been no eukaryotes because if we think of the gradualist theory uh, of this complexity emerging over time it would be unusual not to have seen it happened on multiple occasions i think this is one of the arguments for, the, for against the theory Whereas there had to be this particular set of conditions where maybe we had a preformed complex cell that was probably of archaeal origin, and then there was this unusual endosymbiotic reaction. But it was actually this endosymbiotic reaction in, in this cell that actually gave rise to this remarkable uh, evolutionary event. So that's what I meant by definitive selective advantage. Okay. 
Also to this day, the symbiotic relationship is still hotly debated. The first hypothesis was that um, this first symbiont relationship arose as the alpha bacterium provided metabolites such as uh, hydrogen, carbon dioxide, and acetate, which is uh, which the um, archaeon or the chimeric prokaryote ancestor could use to uh, conduct methanogenesis, which is the process that involves the fermentation of carbon dioxide and other organic compounds to obtain energy, and with the methane gas uh, as the end product. As this can be limiting, the archaea and the alpha proteobacteria moved closer to each other, and that ultimately led to their fusion and dependence on each other. In turn, they needed to develop mechanisms to communicate with each other, which give rise to eukaryotic cell and eukaryotic cellular processes. Okay, thanks a lot for that, Dara. Now let's talk about the role of mitochondrion in genome expansion. From an evolutionary perspective, if we consider all the major hurdles one would have to jump through to become a complex multicellular organism, one of the bigger ones might be the energetic demands. I mean, think about it, 4 billion years and most prokaryotes have never developed much of any morphological complexity, whereas multicellular eukaryotes have made some unbelievably complex kingdoms of life. Many prokaryotes even have many of the characteristics of eukaryotes, but still remain in a relatively primitive state of life. Consider the benefit of taking up some mitochondria. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> by adding the mitochondria, the cell increases its ability to make ATP four to six orders of magnitude, more than it could ever without a mitochondria. Pair this with the fact that protein synthesis takes about 75% of a cell's energetic demand, and this means the cell has way more energy to put towards more complex processes. Think about mitochondria entering the eukaryotic cell like the industrial revolution. Now we can make more stuff than we know what to do with, and the society's development accelerates exponentially faster than we, would, we had to spend all our time making our own stuff. At this point in our evolutionary history, this corresponds with a 200,000-fold increase in the nuclear genome uh, size. Moreover, the mitochondria got to sponge off of the success of the host cell by transferring 3,000 to 4,000 of its own uh, of its uh, genes to the nuclear genome. Dylan, the fact that most mitochondrial proteins actually come from the DNA in the nucleus has always amazed me. How do you think? the key mitochondrial genes were taken over by the nuclear genome and is there any crosstalk between the nuclear and the mitochondrial rnas to this day yeah no great question man it, it, it really is remarkable and to, to be honest the topic is still very much under investigation and um, there's a lot of proposed mechanisms by which dna will transfer over evolutionary time from from a mitochondrial genome into into the nuclear genome um, I think some of the, the most popular cases is that you would have direct gene transfer and it, it would get incorporated by a mechanism very homologous to DNA double strand break repair, like non-homologous enzyme or, or related processes. So you will actually have the actual, uh, maybe some of the genome escaped uh, a, a ruptured membrane and was integrated and then eventually became functional through changes over time. In some instances, a cDNA intermediate, so from a reverse transcribed RNA, may have again been inc incorporated into the into the host cell nuclear genome, and then eventually, over time, it starts taking over that function. And ultimately, that that's the process that we think would have happened. And to be, we actually still see this. I think we still see mitochondrial genes 
um, even from organelle transfer of DNA uh, and chloroplast too, I should add, um, that can be found within the nucleus. And it, while human mitochondrial DNA, I suppose if we, if we kind of define that, it's a, like a, it's a double-stranded circular molecule, uh, but it only encodes about 37 genes um, that are found in mitochondria. The rest are actually now encoded, encoded by the nucleus. Um, and this kind of comes back to the point where these particular genes, there's some pseudogenes that are found, so they're, they're non-functional genes uh, of these particular mitochondrial um, uh, encoded genes still found in, in, um, in the nucleus, but, but they don't produce a functional product. Um, and there's a couple of hypotheses as, as to why this particular set of genes were maintained, and we, we, can, we can discuss that as we go along. But um, to kind of come back to your question about if there's any crosstalk between nuclear mitochondrial RNAs, and, and in fact, absolutely. Um, I can give you a great example is with TFAM. So TFAM is a, a nuclear encoded transcription factor that is involved in the transcription initiation complex of mitochondrial genes from mitochondrial DNA. So it's very, very essential for the transcription of mitochondrial genes, and it comes from the nucleus. And um, what the, the mitochondrial DNA also forms a structure that, that's known as a nucleoid and TFAM is actually very, very important for, for uh, maintenance of this, this structure as well. So we, we see this crosstalk, you know, where, where nuclear, um, nuclear derived genes are very important in regulating mitochondrial genes. Okay, thanks a lot for that. Now that the endosymbiont is safe and sound in its host cell, uh, mitochondria also lost genes that they would have needed previously, like those for flagella. And losing these genes to over time helped save the cell energy, which you cite in the paper as over 50 billion molecules of ATP saved. When you say that, is that 50 billion copies of ATP per cell or over the course of all these years since the emergence of endosymbiosis? So, so this calculation actually comes from Nick Lane, who's a fantastic evolutionary biologist and he's one of the pioneers of the, the symbiogenic theory. Um, if you've never read any of his work, I highly recommend it. And so this particular figure comes from a scenario that he calculated in one of his papers. And uh, so essentially this number comes from if 5% of unnecessary genes from 100 endosymbiont genomes were lost. So what we need to consider is, is uh, this term, which is power per gene or power per genome. So the vast majority of our ATP budget is actually uh, goes to protein synthesis. So the actual expression, you know, maintaining the, the synthesis of, of these. So that's what it's meant by power per gene. How much does it cost to convert it into, into a protein? About 70 to 80 percent of our ATP budget actually goes in kind of microorganisms. So the 50 billion ATPs is actually the amount of ATPs that are saved if you reduce the genome by 5% of redundant genes from 100 genomes in a 24-hour life cycle. So it's 15 billion ATPs for a 24-hour life cycle. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that's a lot of ATP it, being saved. It's a lot of ATP being saved. And that's in the specific context. And it, yeah, that, so that, that's the great work of Nick Lane. Yeah, if, if this was a video podcast, I would put up that meme that says stonks going up. <laughs> all right. So this all, this all makes sense. When you go back and look at the genomes, the eukaryotic common ancestor was able to expand more than 3,000 novel gene families and has five times as many protein folds as eubacteria and time, 10 times as many as the archaea. That's huge increase to the genome. 
Dylan, at this point in the paper, you have supported this hypothesis that increasing the energy available to cells helped increase their complexity. However, you mentioned that new data sets have shown that the power of genes between eukaryotes and prokaryotes is not as significant, uh, significant as once thought. So this new hypothesis does not completely explain the increase in complexity. Can you tell us about these findings and why they might refute the energy barrier hypothesis? Also, what is the energy barrier hypothesis here? Yeah, so this kind of comes back to the idea of power per genome or power per gene. Um, and this is a concept that was developed by Nick Lane. And ultimately what he found was that uh, if you actually calculate how much energy a eukaryotic cell um, has to express this, this expanded genome and control for a number of factors, it was found to be thousands and thousands of fold greater than what happens in a prokaryote. So that's why we have all these unique uh, enzyme families that emerge. Um, and while I think the hypothesis actually really stands up, uh, another paper that kind of analyzed more eukaryotic species and more prokaryotes, but still the sample size uh, is still quite small. What they found is that it's not as great as once thought, but it is still greater. So it doesn't refute the hypothesis. It's still, I think it's pretty robust hypothesis so far of this, this kind of energetic barrier. I reckon uh, the people who are proponents of the gradualist theory would probably prefer the findings of this, this particular study. Um, but I ultimately think that the study more more than not actually supports the finding because they do find this difference that eukaryotes have more power to express the genes that they have. Um, but it got me wondering, is there just something missing? Is it all about energy? Uh, and for a long time, we've always thought the TCA cycle, everyone thinks of mitochondria and they think of energy. And then if, if they don't think of energy, they think of synthesis of, of macromolecules. And uh, very rarely was it thought that uh, kind of any signaling would go on. So. For me, I, I, well, I don't think this re refutes the energy barrier hypothesis. I just believe that there's a lot more to the story. Okay. Well, coming back to the mitochondria, providing energy isn't the only thing that the mitochondria does, right? So another theory is that the interaction between the archaeon and the proto-mitochondrion may have helped to form the nuclear membrane. This inside-out theory posits that the prokaryote was constantly releasing blebs of membranes to communicate with the uh, proto-mitochondria and this eventually formed around the symbiont and formed the endoplasmic reticulum and the inner nuclear membrane that we all know and love today. Just exceeding the energy needs of the cell helped to increase the genome size. It probably also promoted multicellularity. Here the authors cite a paper discussing an important energy trade-off that the organisms deal with. Fermentation results in a low yield of ATP quickly, but cellular respiration makes a high yield of ATP slowly. Naturally, energy is a huge, huge limiting factor of an organism. And generally, the ones with higher overall yields should survive better than those with lower overall yields. In the paper, cited here Pfeiffer et al. 2001, the authors model how a population of fermenting cells could invade and take over a population of respirating cells, but these fermenting cells, cells aren't capable of making a lot of ATP. So their new established population would be smaller because they can only have offsprings as long as they have enough ATP to do so. Dylan, here you compare this scenario with the tragedy of the commons and game theory. 
well, we are but humble immunologists. So could you tell us more about this idea of the tragedy of the commons? Absolutely. Now, I have to say I'm also a humble biochemist and immunologist, and uh, I only came across this particular theory. So this theory was developed almost over 20 years ago, and, and in this they discussed this idea of a tragedy of commons. Um, and I only came through it through their work. But, but ultimately, what a tragedy of commons refers to in economic theory, and I, this was published in like the 1800s, I believe, um, it's a situation in which individuals with access to a shared resource act in their own in their own interest. And then ultimately what happens by acting in their own interest is that you can deplete the resource that you're looking for. So I suppose if we want to give any kind of uh, modern real world um, tragedy of common situations, it might be if you have overfishing of a fish population that would also ultimately decimate that, that fish population. Um, so that's what the tragedy of the commons means. I think commons is um, uh, a shared resource can also be called a common. Okay. Also reminds me of people yeah. running around for toilet papers during the beginning of pandemic and <laughs> exhausting all the toilet papers. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's a pandemic version. Yeah. Okay. So what you're saying is these uh, fermenting cells, they are taking up all the resources and depriving others of the resources while themselves also not benefiting as much. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Just like you mentioned, if the cells collaborate instead of competing, the population can take advantage of the greater amount of ATP generated by cellular respiration. Then you've got some consumer cells who got a bunch of their ATP from the ones undergoing cellular respiration. Hey, you're on your way to becoming a multicellular organism. To support this notion, some fungi can be found in both a multicellular myelial form and in a single-celled yeast-like form. The I'm sorry, mycelial form. The mycelial form does not form if you disrupt cellular respiration. Therefore, mitochondria and the use of the cellular respiration may have also been associated with the rise of multicellular organisms. Uh, Dylan, tumors also change their metabolism to meet their insane energetic needs. And this is a major contribution to a contributor to competition in the tumor microenvironment. Given that what you know about the contributions of energy to collaboration and competition, could you speculate on how this plays a role in the tumor microenvironment and its development? Absolutely. Uh, and I think this is actually a very kind of exciting and active area of research that's really exploded with, with the onset of like kind of better, uh, better techniques and, and tools to kind of investigate metabolic competition, say, even in the tumor microenvironment. Um, like I think for a good example, uh, when, you, when you think of a tumor microenvironment, you've got the tumor cells, which have also got a lot of stromal cells. We've got infiltration, we know, of T cells and, and other um, uh, immune cell populations, and so this this creates a competition for different resources such as amino acids or glucose, and and we actually know now that in the tumor microenvironment that this like competition for resources, which are generally highly consumed by 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 tumors themselves, can lead to T cell exhaustion and can impair cytotoxic T cell proliferation activity, and it can actually prevent the kind of maintenance or or the restriction of tumor growth. So. 
like even recently there, there's been some great uh, I, i've written an opinion piece on this preclinical work that shows that if you uh, metabolically intervene with these exhausted t-cell populations and you kind of promote mitochondrial activity so in this instance they use an il-10 fusion protein and um, it actually boosted immunotherapy responses to like adoptive t-cell transfer so i i think this concept of of metabolism regulating competition in the tumor microbiome is going to be essential in even designing better kind of immunotherapies um and improve current immunotherapies which we know you know only work in a subset of patients and in a subset of tumors so mm. it's a complex topic but um i think it's very very exciting uh, and i think it's going to be very very important to understand tumor evolution and tumor development yeah okay this reminds me of one of our previous body souls where we had uh, i think dr yu riyu he was a postdoc in dr ping chi ho's lab and he had the study where they showed that certain exhausted t cells had their Uh, auto uh, mitophagy machinery missing or broken and if they were able to f- fix that machinery of the mitophagy where they could rescue uh, where they could make good mitochondria and get rid of bad mitochondria these t cells were actually able to clear out some tumors so yeah it completely makes sense that you would you in in such competitions having a working mitochondria gives you an advantage a, a bit Absolutely and and Jason it's it's uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that study it was also from Ping Chi Ho's group as well and um, this particular study uh, on the IL-10 fusion protein and the uh, mitochondrial respiration and, and indeed they, they 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 took different approaches in in one day overexpressed PGC1 alpha and they promoted kind of a mitochondrial biogenesis and it had the same effect so we see this case where if you can actually just improve uh, respiration fidelity in these exhausted t cells that you know we can we can have durable anti tumor responses so it's very very exciting yeah that that is so exciting all right dara can you tell us something about archaeal host and the eukaryogenesis we have heard about the mitochondrial side yep absolutely so move on to the next question where does the eukaryotic complexity come from the answer lies in the deep marine sediments It is now thought that the original archaeal host belonged to the phylum uh, Lochia archaeota, which is a member of the Asgard superphylum. I laughed so hard looking at like learning about these words, Lochia archaeota and Asgard phylum. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like somebody is making fun of these names. But yeah, there, I'll let you continue. Sorry. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. So the ph- phylogenetics analysis indicates that the Asgard genome was enriched for genes involved in vesicle biogenesis and membrane trafficking. More recently, in an outstanding and extensive research that look more than 10 years, scientists isolated an Asgard archaean related to Lochia Lochia <laughs> sorry guys. <laughs> Lochia archaeota called Candida uh, Candidatus. Prometheoarchium synthrophicum. Uh, one interesting property of Asgard is the capacity to degrade amino acids through uh, syntrophy. We understand that syntrophy is a phenomenon of one species uh, living off the metabolic products of another species. And Dylan, do you think that this observation have uh, something to do with the proposal of hypothetical model of eukaryogenesis term entangle and gulf? and endogenize or the e3 model can you tell us more like what exactly is e3 model okay absolutely so uh yeah it's a great name i have to say just the asgard superphylum and the loki archaeota yeah they had a lot of fun uh, <laughs> naming these archaea uh, and i appreciate that and 
Uh, and this work, I suppose, I, we mentioned it earlier on, but it, it's also very commendable that it took 10 years to grow uh, this particular Loki Ardeota, which is a phenomenal scientific endeavor. Um, and very exciting because it's it's probably related or closely related to, to the, the archaeal host that ultimately gave rise to a eukaryote. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, very interesting findings that came from this, and, and I'll touch on them as well. But just to go back to the E3 model, one thing that they found with the Loki Ardeota when they grew them is that they actually had these um, membrane protrusions that that, uh, that seemed to emerge. So they were kind of almost like filamentous. And um, so the, the entangle comes from, uh, they existed in sympatry, in, in, they existed in collaboration with some other microorganisms in the study. That's how they actually grew. They actually, they, they noticed that there was this kind of sympatry going on. Um, and the entangle comes from the fact that it's likely that um, when there was these kind of collaborating microbes before the endosymbiotic event, that it probably um, got caught up in the, these protrusions, uh, which likely led to some sort of membrane blebbing, which could eventually maybe surround the, the, the kind of uh, symbiogenic partner. And when we come to engulf, that's kind of, that kind of explains the engulfing. You know, it's long thought that mm -hmm. there would have been some sort of event um, that some membrane blebbing, in, in some cases it was suggested phagocytosis, but phagocytosis is, um, it would have to be a more evolved host in that instance. And one thing that they didn't find in this Loki Archaeota was evidence of an endomembrane system. So you remember that we might have recalled that there's the mito early and the mito late theory. In the mito late theory, they proposed that there was already some sort of endomembrane system like the endoplasmic reticulum and the Golgi, maybe not the exact same, but these kind of, you know, intracellular membrane invaginations. Um, and then maybe a mitochondria came on. But from this particular Loki areola, um, they actually found no evidence yet of any of these kind of internal membrane um, structures. So we're still not quite sure if they would actually, uh, but it could just be a consequence of this particular species. And it's only one member of a huge, huge superphylum. So um, that remains to be seen. Um, so the engulf would have likely come from sort of membrane blebbing from um, these protrusions that would have surrounded this, this symbiogenic partner. Um, and then finally, endogenized. Endogenized would discusses the role of uh, the compartmentalization of functions. So perhaps there was, you know, um, maybe the development of an ADP, ATP translocate across the nucleus that allowed the sharing of uh, ATP. And so eventually there would have been this delegation of respiration and bioenergetics to the particular precursor. So that's kind of the idea of the E3 model. So we have uh, the symbiogenic event in which there's two separate cells that are interacting in an environment. The, the symbiogenic partner, which was likely of alpha proteobacterial origin or, or a sister um, clade of, of that particular um, bacteria, became engulfed and then endogenized, you know, uh, got delegated this function of respiration. So that's the model. Dylan, if I understand this correctly, the E3 model explains how the, the endosymbiosis happened. Absolutely, okay. or a proposal of how how it may have occurred. Okay, yes, so it's yes. like uh, the mechanistic side side of that. Absolutely, okay. it's like it's like a timeline, but we probably have to think in evolutionary time, which is you know probably very difficult to imagine how the time scales at which this this would occur. Yeah, I also wonder if the term Loki Arcuda was named because they were notorious for not growing easily. 
just <laughs> I, don't, I don't know actually yeah because they're so mischievous yeah, yeah. maybe <laughs> but I, I, i'm gonna look that up actually i want to know that as well tune back again next week for the second part of this two-part series mm-hmm.